It doesn't have to start with fireworks, but a couple of sparks sure wouldn't hurt. Come again, come again. What do you have to say? Still, the fire is burning, but not for long. And what's the point once the heat is gone? Can you see the last gleam slowly fades away? And don't you know that? Don't you know there's a difference between love and routine? The last thing I got excited about was a new coffee machine. I'd rather stay forever 17 if this is what being adult means. Somebody to rely on, ain't that? And that all we need Somebody to rely on And 90 sitcoms on repeat If I could change I would go back in a heartbeat To 1717 Thank you dear listeners For tuning in to another one of our Two Scientists podcasts uh, Our guest today is Rather enjoyably someone we're meeting in Berlin A neurologist and neuroscientist Called Emra Dutzel Thank you so much for coming out to meet with us today Thank you for having me So what we do with all of our scientists At the beginning is to ask them to uh, Tell us about their, their Background, what they studied And how they ended up in their particular field of work Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm a, a neurologist so I studied medicine in Germany. Um, that's uh, already 25 years ago now. And um, already during my studies, I was very interested in electrophysiology and memory. And I wanted to actually start with animal experiments on how um, hippocampal circuits work. Um, but then due to change in university, I. Um, came into contact with somebody at the University of Bonn who did um, very interesting research in patients with epilepsy on memory. So then uh, quite early on I basically ended up in looking at human memory and um, ever since that time I, I stayed in that field kind of. So you are currently working at the University of Magdeburg, at least that's your main base, is that correct? Yes, yeah. And so your, your research actually takes you into multiple fields, but before we go into that, can you tell us a little bit about um, what the research currently says about how we form memories? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the million dollar questions, <laughs> how we form memories. Um, I think the interesting aspect of it is that um, memory formation has, has many different timescales. And it's these different timescales that we are trying to understand, really. So we know that there is a, you know, a very fast and probably quite transient, um, highly detailed perceptual st um, phase that's followed by the encoding of a more abstract representation of, of event-like structures. And um, we also know that such event-like memories are formed continuously, you know, as we, as we experience things. But much of what we actually encode um, decays again. At least we think it decays because it's very difficult to access all of, all of our experiences later on. So there must be some 
phase that stabilizes these transient event memories. And um, now the question is, um, that, that's probably also a bit of a philosophical question, where does memory start? You know? So what's the time, time scale of memory? And um, I think many people, when they think of memory, probably think of long-term memory. And um, previously, many people would say, would have said, long-term memory starts after a few minutes. It's probably correct, but nowadays, there's also very, a very important distinction between um, hours, you know, a few hours, and the more long-lasting memories. And that difference between memories that last a few hours and those that are much more long-lasting, we call that consolidation. So, um, so the question that we are trying to understand is how are event memories formed, how do they survive for a few hours, and what then stabilizes them to stay even longer in the brain. Um, now, obviously, there is, there are, this question has a lot of different facets. So there are um, cellular changes, protein changes. There are changes or uh, mechanisms related to cell-to-cell -cell communication, you know, networks of, of, of neurons. There's communication between networks and, and brain regions. Um, there is a input from um, other modulatory brain areas that provide key neurotransmitters and so on and uh, and obviously these things can be studied you know um, at these different levels um, and it requires a lot of interdisciplinary work to actually disentangle this as you know and we are as human researchers, um, probably most interested in the network aspect of this because that's the best accessible for us. Um, and that's what we are mostly looking at. So the other side of the coin is actually the, the diseases that develop within the brain that are largely as a result of, again, changes within the nerve cells that then lead to things like dementia and Alzheimer's and so on. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do for that? Yes, so one of our main interests currently is Alzheimer's disease. That's seemingly straightforward because it starts with a memory dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And um, we also kind of know which brain regions are affected first mm -hmm. in terms of pathology. But then when you look at it in a more detail, it becomes extremely complex because Despite our knowledge in terms of where pathology occurs in the brain, we have actually no idea how the pathology affects function. And um, we, still, we still have a very poor understanding of what exactly the brain regions do um, for memory that are affected by pathology in Alzheimer's disease. And then there's also the question of how different amounts of pathology affect function. So we know that Alzheimer's, unlike stroke, doesn't knock out a brain area. It modifies a brain area. And we don't understand that modification. 
So we don't know if you know we don't know what happens if you lose let's say 40% of synapses in a brain region. Yeah. We have no idea what that you know what the functional consequences. We don't know what happens if you accumulate you know one of the culprits of Alzheimer's disease that is tau in terms of the function of a brain area. Mm -hmm. So um, and the same is true for amyloid. And then you have many other things such as in Alzheimer's disease, such as vascular dysfunction, you have metabolic dysfunction, so uh, impaired uptake of glucose, you have neurotransmitter dysfunction, so neurotransmitters such as acetylcholine, dopamine, noradrenaline are also affected. So it becomes hugely complex at the end, but um, of course that's why, why it's also so interesting. And, um, you know, the challenge is kind of the interesting part of it. Yeah. So, what kind of techniques do you then use in order to do your particular research? Because most people have a tool that they rely on in order to get their data. Yes, so, I mean, brain imaging is one of our main uh, tools. So, functional imaging and structural imaging. So, we use um, MRI. Um, and in Magdeburg, we are lucky to have ultra high field MRI, so seven Tesla imaging, which provides us with much more structural and functional detail mm -hmm. and resolution and also signal uh, to look at these things. Um, we are also using um, electrophysiology, so EEG, MEG, and, um, and of course molecular imaging. Yeah using positron emission tomography. So I would say these are the basic tools that have been So how exactly does MRI work? Because I'd imagine that a lot of people understand it's this giant machine that people get shoved into and then there's these pretty pictures that you see at the end of it. But what exactly is it recording? Yeah, so you're recording basically the effects of the magnetic field on, on protons. And then the um, the, the hydrogen protons that, that are perturbed by the strong magnetic fields, they transmit radio waves, which you can record with the MR, and depending on what type, you know, depending on the tissue composition, um, how much water there is, how much macromolecules there is, how much diffusion there is, and so on, you can actually um, tell something about the tissue composition. And you can also say something about blood flow, actually, or uh, it's not directly blood flow, but something related to blood flow, because the um, hemoglobin, which carries uh, iron, um, has magnetic susceptibility, and you can basically make use of that to actually measure also blood flow in the brain, brain region. Obviously, having asked you about what you're working on in terms of the diseases, the question is, how do you then do something to prevent them or to treat them? We're here with our friend Matt, who is a, a former colleague of mine, and we were talking about these brain training programs like Lumosity, which I think have incurred a lot of trouble recently for promising much more than they actually deliver. So what do you think about these kinds of programs? Yeah, I think the problem has been that, um, um, you know, there, there is, well, there is a lot of empirical evidence that people who are cognitively and physically active 
have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And that empirical evidence um, was um, used and uh, I would say misused by a lot of companies who, who didn't really have the knowledge or the background um, for this to oversell and overpromise um, the prospects of you know poorly designed or the benefits of poorly designed training programs and um, and obviously all the individuals who think they may be at risk of Alzheimer's disease and because of the anxieties in of developing Alzheimer's disease they were um, you know very prone to believe these promises and um, this is this is um, surely a you know big problem that the field faces now. In general, I, I would say that the combination of physical and cognitive exercise is empirically clearly beneficial. Uh, in our hands, uh, the two things should go hand in hand. So physical exercise and cognitive exercise should support each other. And um, we are, as many other labs are, are developing approaches to actually make the synergy of the two so of cognitive and physical exercise as strong as possible um, but we don't think that either of them alone is going to be as a solution but you really need both the problem is that um, I think we have to understand that um, there is there are limits to brain plasticity mm -hmm. so you cannot just enhance things you know, as much as you probably would like to. Um, so with physical exercise, for instance, we are interested in whether every brain, every older brain, is equally capable of benefiting from physical exercise, or whether there are limitations, uh, for instance, due to, you know, limitations in vascular plasticity that may make this you know, less efficient in some people than in other people. Um, so these individual variabilities are going to be very important. And uh, I think it will be, in the future, it will be important to be able to individually prescribe the correct dose of these things. Mm -hmm. Because particularly, probably with physical exercise, you could also overdo things. And this is something we need to, you know, we need research on. But um, ultimately, what we believe is that physical and cognitive exercise will accompany pharmacological treatment. They will not be standalone um, therapies because I don't think, as a standalone, they will be able to prevent Alzheimer's disease in, in any individual, but they will accompany uh, future pharmacological treatments. Mm -hmm. Just like uh, with, with you know, heart disease, when you have a pharmacological treatment of um, you know, a coronary dysfunction, mm -hmm. um, you have also a lifestyle change that yeah. goes hand in hand with that. And we need the same for Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually you're talking about this idea of the brain having limits on what it can do all these terrible movies that have been made in the past few years saying that we only use 10% of our brains. No, that's not true. It's just the, the way that the, the brain cells work within 
the brain. We are using all of it. It's just not necessarily working at maximal efficiency, I think. Yes, that's true. I mean, the, um, I completely agree. Um, we are not capable of of um, using different cognitive faculties consciously at the same time. Um, now, this may be com you know completely meaningful um, because intuitively it doesn't make much sense to. Um, let's say, retrieve old memories, um, at the same time learn something completely new, mm -hmm. and, um, um, and then while you do that, engage in an interesting conversation. We cannot do all this at the same time. Um, and therefore, we only use you know, certain regions of our brain yeah. at any given time. Now, whether this is a principal problem that can be overcome, um, you know, by some superior architecture um, or by some tweak to our brain. Um, we don't really know. I mean, you could imagine that, you know, if I were to imagine a higher organism that's more developed than the human brain, I think this is what I would change. So, um, um, but but obviously. Within, within, within the human brain, yes. <laughs> that's a fundamental limitation. Um, so speaking of the human brain, Matt asks, in terms of Alzheimer's disease research, what is the most exciting research going on at the moment? Yeah, I think the most exciting research going on in the moment is the prospect of having disease modification quite early on in the preclinical phase of Alzheimer's disease and at the same time being able to actually recognize the preclinical phase in terms of its cognitive changes. So bringing these two together. If we are able to, you know, within the next few years, to have cheap and um, widely usable preclinical diagnostics to stratify people early on into a, into a disease-modifying therapy, I think that in combination with a disease-modifying therapy would be very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. The current problem is that many of the early Alzheimer's trials are based on molecular imaging techniques or MR studies. Yeah. And these are so expensive that you cannot do them on a large scale. Mm -hmm. And because by definition the preclinical state of Alzheimer's disease is not well visible because it's preclinical and people haven't developed dementia yet. <laughs> In order for these therapies to be useful, you would have to basically brain scan every, every person, let's say, above 65, which is completely unfeasible. So you need ways to actually be able to detect people who are at risk in preclinical stage, for instance, through subtle cognitive changes in their memory systems. Mm -hmm. And then these people who change or decline, they undergo further diagnostics, for instance with PET, and they get then access to early treatment. I think the combination of the two could be quite exciting. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that you have very clear genetic markers within cancer, for example, you can easily say somebody with this particular gene is very, very likely to present with breast cancer, for example. Are there the same sorts of targets that you can identify for Alzheimer's? 
Well, there, um, there is, of course, um, you know, a autosomal dominant genetic variant of Alzheimer's disease, um, which is something to do with, with amyloid, you know, the um, amyloid precursor protein. But this is a very rare variant of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the by far most frequent form of Alzheimer's disease is a, is a sporadic one. Mm -hmm. And there you don't have a genetic determinant, but you have certain genetic risk factors. And the APOE4 allele is one of the most prominent risk factors. So if you are homozygous for the APOE4 allele, your Alzheimer's risk is, is um, uh, considerably elevated. And then there are other risk factors that, or risk genes that have recently been identified that have to do with inflammation, for instance. Um, there are certain genetic components uh, that people are starting to identify um, but but particularly with Alzheimer's disease it's not the, the most frequent form the sporadic one yeah. is not a predominantly genetic disease okay. at least as far as we know right now yeah. so I mean given in the, the social consciousness people are very um, they're far more aware of things like animal experimentation and so on. And obviously we'd prefer as scientists not to have to do any of these. One of David's questions is, uh, you wanted to work with animal models, but you switched to humans. So can we understand your work with data just from humans? Well, I, you know, the problem with Alzheimer's disease is that I would say 99% of the research is on animal models. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, there's just no way that you can um, identify drug targets purely based on human research. It's just impossible. And, and um, also much of the work on um, understanding the mechanisms and the consequences of certain pathology on, on circuits and, and certain types of cognitive processes is based on animal models. Now you could say, and many people argue, um, that although animal models are quite convenient to understand these aspects, mm -hmm. you know, we are we are not quite sure to what extent you can actually then make conclusions on the human condition mm -hmm. from the animal models. So, on the one hand, we believe that we need animal models. On the other hand, there is also this big question mark as to how relevant certain models are. Um, so I think we are caught in that, um, you know, in that zone right now that we have to rely on animal models to identify drug targets in particular, but we don't actually know how relevant these will be for humans. Um, everyone is aware of that problem. So another question he had for you was going back to where you were talking about networks. And he says, can you elaborate on what networks you work on? And also, are those networks something that help prevent neurodegenerative diseases? So the, the networks that we work on are um, the, those that are really at the core of memory processing. So that regulate the input-output operations of human memory, as we think. And the most prominent brain structure there is the hippocampus, 
and its surrounding uh, temporal lobe uh, cortex. And we are interesting, interested in identifying which basically the different nodes of that circuitry, uh, which function different nodes of the circuitry have, um, what type of information goes in, what type of information comes out, and how this is basically affected in Alzheimer's disease and, and early neurodegeneration. Um, <clears throat> so I think from, the, from a good understanding of this, we can, you know, what we aim for is to develop very specific, anatomically specific cognitive tests, where we exactly know that if somebody fails at that test, the problem in the brain must be in a very particular brain region. Yeah. Um, and currently that's not possible with the existing tests. This is an interesting one that is more of an aside from your research. David says, if we measure enough stuff from our brains, can we reconstruct them in a computer? This comes from a computer scientist, by the way. Well, you know, there is a big European uh, flagship program that's called the Human Brain Project. And uh, this is one of the goals. I tend to be a bit skeptical. <laughs> just because of the sheer complexity um, of this. Um, you know, even if we were able to, to reconstruct certain components of, of a brain circuit, let's say, um, you know, a cortical column uh, in, a, of a, in a certain brain area, I think when it comes to humans, we still have, it will take a long time to understand what actually is laid down in different layers of a cortical column and so I wouldn't exclude this possibility in principle but probably I would think that we have at least a hundred years to go <laughs> until we may be able to do this. Wasn't there a recent case with a French patient who was when they actually scanned inside his head he was missing like a phenomenal proportion of his brain and yet somehow it had rewired itself so that bits that would not usually be doing that job were then functioning perfectly normally. So they didn't realize there was anything wrong with him. Yes, there is a huge scope for plasticity, particularly if injury to the brain occurs in early childhood. Mm -hmm. um, that scope, you know, considerably, is considerably reduced once you are adolescent and, and, old, and older age. So then, um, then there is a much stronger trade-off between stability and plasticity than there is in young age. And in fact, as you say, stability plays a very important role for brain function. And there are a number of factors in the brain that actually um, try to promote stability, which is very meaningful. But these factors can also be too prominent, and that, that can impair plasticity both for rewiring the brain but yeah. also for forming new memories for instance or new skills yeah. and this is also one aspect of Alzheimer's disease that we are interested in namely that um, because due, due to certain factors such as changes in glial function mm -hmm. the stability aspect of the brain may, may be so strong that it's very difficult to form new memories despite the fact that in other brain regions you also lose memories. Yeah. So this is something that, that is that's a very important topic actually.
and obviously any you know any type of computer would have would have to mimic these types of dynamics in a very clever way which you know we are very far away from that so this is kind of interesting because a, a couple of months ago our guest was actually someone working on machine learning and artificial intelligence and matt asks so Google DeepMind and artificial intelligence being used in neuroscience, um, could this have implications for Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative research? Yeah, I think um, probably yes. Um, at least we are very interested in this. Mm -hmm. So one problem that we have in Alzheimer's disease is that we have no idea what the memory of a person with Alzheimer's disease looks like. Yeah. Of course, we know it fades away in some form, but we don't fully understand what aspect fades away. You know, let's say you have a picture of a scene in your memory. We don't know what aspect of that scene is getting lost in Alzheimer's disease. You know, which features yeah. decay and which don't, and um, and obviously this would be very important to understand. Um, and in, in fact, it's quite disturbing that although we know that there is some form of memory loss, we have no, we don't even have the faintest idea what the memory of a patient with Alzheimer's looks like. Now, um, I think that the approach that Google DeepMind is using, in terms of um, having, you know, these these rich neural networks coding for different aspects of of let's say perceptual information or of an image um, this could be very useful because there's already some indication that these models actually um, do map in some meaningful way on brain function so the different layers of the network that Google Deep, the algorithm of Google DeepMind uses or these, these machine learning algorithms use they um, appear to map on the different hierarchies of human brain processing. I think this is a very, very interesting future approach that could tell us something about which layers of a neural network and by inference, um, you know, by, by interaction, which brain regions in the human brain are dysfunctional. And this could help us create models of how the memory of a patient looks like. I mean, obviously, this is a future scenario, but um, it's it's something we could really reach for. Yeah. So, um, more exercise means better brains, means higher chances of being attacked by zombies. <laughs> As in, what your brain will be tastier, so zombies are more likely to want to eat it. <laughs> That's a risk we should take. Yes, fine. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we would like to say thank you so much for coming to meet with us today. It's, I think it's a subject that's very, very relevant as humans live longer and longer and more of us start to see these kinds of terrible diseases developing in our family and friends. So yes, thank you again so much. It's been a pleasure. It was great. Thank you very much for your interest. <laughs>
I was actually at the, at the verge of switching again gears from human research to animal research and in fact to non-human primates and I was invited to the NIH to work with um, uh, a scientist whom I you know adore quite a lot that's Mortimer Mishkin and uh, we were talking about the prospects of doing memory research in, in non-human primates and it was um, for me a very difficult decision because I'm actually vegetarian so I don't even eat meat you know um, let alone doing experiments in animals that was kind of quite a big stretch for me but um, the amount of insight one would able to gain and of course also the career prospects were quite amazing so I went to the NIH um, and visited Mort Mishkin and um, this was actually quite close to a Society for Neuroscience meeting and yeah. a lot of my friends were also there. On the day when I had the meeting with Mort Mishkin and he showed me the lab and so on, they also came along and they said, okay, we will wait for you. And, and they went to the Smithsonian while they were waiting. Then it, you know, after my meeting with Mort Mishkin, they picked me up from the NIH. And the meeting went actually quite well and I was very impressed with the amount of rigor in terms of animal welfare and so on and I came out and was even more split in terms of what I should do. But then my friends were waiting for me at the uh, exit of the NIH and they were carrying, you know, these fluffy puppet um, macaque monkeys that you can buy <laughs> at the Smithsonian. And they, they brought me one as a present. And the <laughs> at the very moment when I was holding this fluffy macaque thing in my hand, I said, okay, this is it. I will not go into non-human primate research. So that was a point in time where basically a little fluffy toy completely changed my career decision. just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. 
Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle 2Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at 2Scientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Straight on till morning